We're going to begin in Romans 12. Romans 12. Our passage this afternoon is going to be verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Of course, in that passage, Paul is talking to his readers about presenting their bodies as a living sacrifice, not conforming to the world, but making a transformation. And what he's talking about is changing themselves to fit God's pattern. So when we think about change, what does it really mean to change? I I guess it really depends on what you're talking about. We often think of change as something that is hard and not enjoyable, and perhaps maybe change is that way most often, but it is a fact that we change those things about ourselves or our surroundings that we want to change. We may make physical changes. We are, I guess, in that time of year where people begin to think about changing things. New Year's resolutions, people want to change their financial situation or their physical situation or whatever the case may be. I don't know that I've ever made a a New Year's resolution. Maybe I ought to. But what does it mean when God asks us to change? I think what it really means is He asks us to grow. He's asking us to grow. Can it be said that a person who obeys the gospel has changed if he hasn't grown since he obeyed the gospel? Well, I think that initially he changed or she changed for a short period of time. That person came from being a member of the world, being a non-Christian, to becoming a Christian. But if it stopped there, I think probably what happened is they receded back into where they were if they did not grow. See, you have to continue to grow, right? You're a babe in Christ, and we know that's the illustration because Paul talked about drinking milk, and then you go on to eat meat, right? And we know what that illustration is. Uh, A person has a child, that child drinks milk, they go on to eat things that are uh, more solid than milk, whatever that may be, cereal or whatever the case may be, and then eventually you go on to eat meat, you eat other things, right? And and then uh, uh, because you're growing, And so at one time or another, all of God's people have changed and grown from someone who was living in sin to someone who was walking in the light. But I don't know that the issue is is not whether one will change but uh, or whether he can change, but will he change? I think that's the issue. Will he change? Will he better change, right? That's what God wants. And, And when we change spiritually speaking, it must be for the better because of the changes Christ made for us. You know, Christ did change. Someone says, now wait a minute, Christ doesn't change. That's what the Bible says. He clearly doesn't change. He doesn't waver. Well, Christ doesn't change His nature, but Christ made some changes for us. He changed His position, didn't He? He left heaven. He came to earth. He changed His position. He didn't change who He was. He never stopped being God. He changed His his position in that He manifest Himself into being a human, right? Was it for His betterment? Of course not. It wasn't for His betterment. He left the glory of heaven. It was for our betterment. He gave up 
He gave up heaven, a place He enjoyed on high. He took upon Himself the characteristics of a person so He could come and live among people, so He could suffer like a person. And He lived as a person. Notice what Paul commanded. Philippians 2, beginning with verse 5. He said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now that's kind of an odd way to make that statement. We don't use terminology like that today. I think probably the better statement would be did not see it as something to grasp hold of or to cling to, meaning He willingly left heaven. He willingly left heaven. But made Himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, He became a servant, he became a person, a human, and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So his change was better for us, but it was not better for him. But he did it anyway. So change is always the result of our actions in regard to the things of this life. There's something else about change we need to understand. You see, the Bible is full of commandments. It's full of commandments, but those commandments are presented as God, something that He wants us to do for Him because we want to do it. That's the idea behind it, right? Someone looks at the Bible and they say, well, it's just a book of you can't do this, you can't do that, you have to do this, you have to do that. And after a while that gets a little harsh and a little boring and a little mundane. And it is a book full of commandments and there are a lot of them. And there are a whole lot of don't do this and you better not do that. But you need to do this and you need to do it this way. And because that's the nature of God and He tells us what He wants and how He wants it because He can do that and it is a book of commandments but He gives them to us and He wants us to do them because we want to do them. That's the whole idea behind it. If we're doing it just simply because it's a commandment, that's not going to get it done. He wants us to do it because we want to do it. In other words, God wants us to change because we want to change. That's the whole idea. Otherwise, our change doesn't matter. The title of the sermon this afternoon is, What Did My Change Do to Me? There's a story told about a young woman and her father. One day the daughter complained to her father that her life was just miserable. Her life was miserable. She didn't know what she was going to do to make it. She just simply struggled every day, all day. She's tired of fighting. It seemed after one problem got cleared up, another problem showed up. It never stopped. It just kept going. And her father happened to be a chef, so... He took her into the kitchen and as they were talking or more like as she was complaining, he filled up three pots of water, put them on high on the stove and as she kept talking, he and they began to boil. He put some potatoes in one and he put some eggs in the other and he ground up some coffee beans and he put those in one of the other pots. And so he had three pots going and as they sat there, she kept talking and he didn't say anything and And after about 20 minutes, they sat there and he turned off the burners and he took the potatoes out of the pot and he put them in one bowl and he took the eggs out of the pot and put them in another bowl and then he ladled out some coffee and 
he put them in a couple of mugs and then he looked at his daughter and he said, what do you see? And she was kind of exasperated. After all, she had been sitting there talking for 20 minutes, telling her, telling her father about all the terrible things in her life and she needed some answers. And she just kind of exasperated, said, it's potatoes, eggs, and coffee. He said, look closer and touch the potatoes. She did, and she said, well, they're soft. He said, take an egg and break it. So she took the egg, and she pulled off the shell, and she said, well, it's a hard-boiled egg. He said, well, take a sip of the coffee. And she took a sip of the coffee, and it brought a smile to her face. So she said, well, what does it mean? And so he looked at her and he said, you know those potatoes and eggs and, and coffee, each of those face the same adversity in, in, in their lives. Of course, obviously, he's using it as an illustration. But they each face the boiling water. But each one reacted differently, he said. He said, you know, the potato, it went in strong and hard and unrelenting and and when it came out of the boiling water, it was soft and weak. The egg was fragile. It had this thin outer shell that protected its liquid interior until it was put in the boiling water, and then the inside of the egg became hard. He said, but the ground coffee bean was very unique. You see, after they were exposed to the boiling water, see, they changed the water and they created something Entirely different and new. He looked at his daughter and he said, Well, which one are you? When adversity knocks on your door, how do you respond? Are you the potato? Are you the egg? Or are you the coffee bean? Are you going to do something about your situation? Are you going to change the environment? Or are you going to complain to your daddy? And do nothing about it. So maybe the moral in life, things happen around us, things happen to us. But the only true thing that really matters is what happens within us. So what are we? Change isn't easy, but we have to change. A person who changes spiritually must first change, I believe, emotionally. We have to look around us and we have to decide that we have to change. Now what does that mean to the alien sinner who has never accepted God? Well, that means repentance, right? We understand that. Paul said that there were two, two things in this world that bring about uh, repentance. Okay? Or two, two aspects of the one thing that brings about repentance. Well, godly sorrow brings about repentance, but there are two types of sorrow is really what I'm trying to say. You have this godly sorrow, but then you have this worldly sorrow. Now we have two examples, or at least two. We have several. And that's in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. But godly sorrow is that emotion that says, Hey, you know, I've made a mistake, and it hurts me that I've made a mistake because I've hurt someone. Most importantly, I've hurt God. Now when we make mistakes and we hurt God, is He the only person we hurt? Well, no, of course He isn't the only person we hurt. But He is the one we hurt first, right? We have to recognize that. Now let's talk about King Saul for just a moment. 1 Samuel 15, 17 through 19 is the example of King Saul. He was given an order. 
He was supposed to go down. He was supposed to utterly destroy the Amalekites. Now, I don't know about King Saul, but when I understand this word utterly destroy, or this phrase utterly destroy, that means nothing comes back. Right? You go down, you utterly destroy something. That means it's gone completely. It's out of here. You can't bring anything back. Nothing exists. Well, now, Saul didn't understand that, or he chose not to understand it. So he destroyed the things not worth having. He brought back some loot. He brought back the good livestock. And he brought back the king. And so Samuel goes and visits him. And I wrote uh, wrote a sermon and delivered a sermon one time, and I think I probably delivered it here, that said, Are those sheep I hear? Or that's the title of it, Are those sheep I hear? And I, I think I used the illustration at my house. Is that broccoli? What's that on? Is that broccoli on your plate? When I asked Blakeland, "Have you eaten your broccoli?" and she says, "Yes," and I said, "Well, what's that on your plate?" Well, see, Saul did not utterly destroy. Well, Saul presented himself as someone who was sincerely sorry for his actions, but he was not. First Samuel fifteen twenty six. He said, "Let me return with you." He wanted to offer sacrifice. He wanted to do this. He wanted to do that. He was sorry, but he was sorry because Samuel wasn't having any of it. Not only was Samuel not having any of it, God was not going to be fooled by his worldly sorrow. So we had a little problem at our house this afternoon and it brought up an example that happened one time while we were in Memphis. One of our friends got a little boy he got caught with his hand in the cookie jar and his mom came running to him and he started cramming as many cookies in his mouth as he could get before she got to him. He was sorry he got caught only because he couldn't be continue eating cookies. So he was putting as many in his mouth as he could before she got there and then he jumped down and ran off right before she reached to get him because he could outrun her. Now the opposite spectrum of worldly sorrow, I believe, is the Apostle Peter. This is godly sorrow, right? After he denied the Lord on three occasions, when that cock crowed for the last time, when he happened to turn around, do you know who was looking at him? Jesus, the Lord. Before the cock crowed, thou shalt deny me thrice, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. Luke 22, 61 through 62. Now right before that, the Lord turned and looked upon Peter Peter remembered those words. Now he could have simply run away and never considered his actions again, but he was sorry for what he had done. He wasn't trying to to pull a fast one on the Lord. He wasn't trying to pull a fast one on God. He was sorry he had done what he had done. If he could have gone back and taken it away, if he could have had those three times to do over again, he would have done the right thing. Now, brethren, that's godly sorrow. If you could take it back, and you would, Saul wouldn't have taken it back. Peter would have taken it back. We change emotionally when we realize every sin is against God. Listen, the alien sinner has to understand that. That's repentance. But that goes along with the one who's the Christian as well. Peter wasn't an alien sinner. Saul wasn't an alien sinner. They were both children of God. But they had to change emotionally. Saul didn't get it done. Peter did. 
You see, others may be harmed or hurt by our sins, but ultimately, when we sin, it's against God. And we change emotionally when we realize every sin is against God. Let's talk about David for a moment. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Not only did he commit adultery, he murdered her husband, Uriah. I don't know what kind of excuse David was coming up with in his mind. I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know how you get to that point in life where you send out your second in command and you say, you go take this guy out and you put him on the front line and, and then you pull back from him and, and you let the enemy kill him. I don't know how you get there in life, especially when he is your loyal subject and you murder this man, and then you just go on in life like nothing ever happened, and then Nathan shows up, and he begins to talk to him, and he says, David, let me tell you about this fellow. Let me tell you about this poor guy that had a, a little ewe lamb, and that's the only one he had, and he loved him like he was a family member. In fact, it ate from his table as if it was his own child. And then there was this rich guy that lived down the road, and he stole that ewe lamb from him. And you know, David was so angry. He was so angry that he said the man needed to be punished, but not just punished, he needed to be put to death. And then, of course, that's when Nathan spoke those famous words, 2 Samuel 12, 7, Thou art a man. To that, David in sorrow said, I've sinned against the Lord. You know, it's hard when I read this section of Scripture, for me to get around the fact that David had Uriah murdered. It's just really difficult for me to, to move on from that. But David is sincere. David is sincere because he realizes that all sin is against God and he wants to change. He wants to change, and God wants him to change. And that's what happened. For the one who has yet to obey the gospel, he has to follow the pattern of salvation. For the one who is already the child of God, he has to follow the pattern of salvation. Everybody has to follow the pattern of salvation. They're different from one to the other, right? We know what the alien sinner has to do, but we have to always still be reminded what the Christian has to do. The Christian has to recognize that when he or she sins against God, they have to repent of that sin and ask God to forgive them of that sin. David had to do that. And that's what he did when he said, I have sinned against the Lord. Change isn't always easy, but we must change. Along with changing emotionally, one must also change mentally. Now, what are we talking about? Well, how's that done? We have to clothe ourselves in the armor of God. When we go over to Ephesians chapter 6, we learn a little bit about what that means to be clothed in the armor of God. We talk about the, the uh, putting on the belt. We talk about shotting our feet. We're talking about putting on the, the, the helmet and wearing the shield. And we learn about truth. And we learn about all those things. What are we really talking about? We're talking about learning what God tells us through His Word. That's mentally preparing ourselves. 
That's what that's exactly what Paul is talking about. Paul explained how to behave regarding our relationship to our children in Ephesians. He talked about the relationship to children, to parent, parent to child, servant to master, master to servant. The way they were able to grow into that behavior by clothing themselves in the armor of God, giving them the tools necessary to be able to have those things. You see, we gain the ability to arm ourselves with all those characteristics only through a diligent study of the Word of God. That's why Paul demanded from Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. You see, there's another example of someone demanding something, of someone commanding something. See, it's the Holy Spirit talking through Paul. Timothy's being demanded And he's being demanded to demand that from other people. But does it do any good unless someone wants to fulfill those commandments? That's the whole idea behind it. You have to want to change, right? Paul told those in Corinth, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. You see, without the proper preparation, we cannot be steadfast. We cannot be unmovable and always abounding or overflowing in the work of the Lord. That is exactly what Paul meant when he said, think on these things in Philippians 4.8. One changes mentally by clothing himself in the Word of God and learning what God expects. You see, we learn what God expects and then we want to do the things that God expects. We also change mentally by committing ourselves to God. Foremost, one must be faithful. Notice what David did. David committed himself by saying, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside, it shall not cleave to me. Psalm 101.3 You know what I've often thought about David? I've never tried to do a time frame with Psalm 101.3, but I've often wondered when he wrote this psalm. And I don't know if the psalms are in chronological order. <laughs> I don't know. I know I know Psalm 51 is, is a repentance psalm, and I don't think they're in chronological order. But I don't know when he wrote Psalm 101, if it was before or after he murdered Uriah. But here's what I do know. David repented. David changed because he wanted to change. But he made some terrible mistakes in this life. I think if he had it to do over, I think he's like Peter. I think he would go back and he would give anything within him to have that one back. Listen to Paul's admonition again, Romans 12 verse 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What did my change do to me? What did our change do to us? I think that's what we need to ask. We're all going to change. It isn't if we're going to change. It isn't can we change. Oh, we'll change. Are we going to 
change like the potato, the egg, or will we change the circumstances like the coffee in the illustration? What did my change do to me? Before a change can be seen in the outward man, there must be a radical change in the inward person. That's absolutely necessary. The wise man said this, Proverbs 23, 7, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Paul is telling us, stop being conformed to this world, but transform or change yourself into what God wants. Once we transform or change ourselves, then what changes? Those things around us. And then, we're like the coffee bean. Right? That's what happens to the coffee bean. It changes those things around us. Change isn't always easy, but we must change. The Bible is full of examples of change and none more astounding to me than the Apostle Paul. Again, we should not ask the question, can I change? Instead, we should ask, what will my change do to me? We begin that process by changing emotionally and mentally. Now, it doesn't stop there, but that is where it must begin. If you need to answer the Lord's invitation this day, do that as we stand and as we sing.